0: Dad. Fashion. By Dad. Fashion. By Dad. By Dad. We're all bad here on Fashion By Dad. Well, we're all sinners. Some of us have committed fashion crimes, others have only sinned in our minds. Yes, we are perched on the edge. And for the next hour, your Dash and Dada is joined by Guy Lane of Vita. Vita is New Religion religion without a deity welcome guy
1: hello how are you going there
0: now guy you've just uh, brought in a little pocketbook called vita awakening
1: yes
0: so uh that's introducing the um you're calling it the rethinking our place on earth do you want to just introduce that to the uh, listener
1: so um uh, the vita Awakening. <coughs> Uh is a concept of uh, helping people to uh, develop a spiritual affiliation with uh, nature and the living planet. And this little book uh, tries to do two things uh, synergizing two things together, one of which is some environmental education around explaining how uh, the greenhouse effects works and how that's uh, concerning for climate change. Yeah, about the
0: first half of the book is really a um, very straightforward yeah yep. Yeah. Yep. In, uh, introduction to the idea of gas <coughs> molecules and yep. browning motion and <coughs> all of those uh, things we learnt in high school Forgot, science. Forgot
1: from high school.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I think a lot of people just, did, you know, chewed out when it comes to molecules, atoms, yeah. chemistry.
1: I think a lot of people, when they talk about climate change, they get really stuck on climate change because they don't necessarily understand the very basics about air molecules, for example. So I've just tried to approach the subject by stepping from the very very beginnings all the way through in the space of 20 pages on a small book it's only about 40 minutes or 30 minutes to read up to this point but what it segues into is really an explanation of how our planet is collapsing our ecosystem is collapsing through human action and fundamentally due to western people having a dis being disconnected spiritually from nature that's fundamental driver the way we see it
0: Mm. So, is that a bit like the creation story, in a, a sense, you know, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and on the first day he created
1: light? And yeah, well, all, all spiritual philosophies uh, seek to answer those big questions, right? So, this is about the big questions of where do we come from, and why are we here, and what happens when we die? And if you look at the way that spiritual philosophy is practiced in the West, answer those questions i mean they give answers but they're not particularly helpful answers in the face of the ecosystem collapsing around us and so what we have tried to do with vida is to sort of approach those big questions of where do we come from and why are we here and what happens when we die uh from the perspective of humans as a part of nature i mean we We've got as much right to be on this planet as the trees and the bees and the whales and the snails. We came from the same place. So if you ask, why are we here? You might ask, why are they are they here? And we're here for the same reason, which is to positively contribute
0: to the, to the ecosystem
1: that acts as our life support system.
0: Um, so why do we need a... Uh, framework to see that I mean someone who did remember their high school science or someone who simply watches the world catching fire and the thousand year flood sweeping German towns into the Rhine or whichever river it was that you know flooded recently gets that aha moment oh dear oh dear the poo has hit the fan we better do something Mm. so Mm. um you know there is a, a reason based scientific framework that allows us to uh, mm. encourage each other to take action why are you focused on the spiritual approach well fundamentally
1: um the destruction of the ecosystem can't just be seen as a scientific phenomena or an economic problem or a, a, a political problem it's a it's a profoundly spiritual um, uh, thing that we are doing, you can't look at the destruction of, of 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 effectively Mother Nature that birthed us, that provides us with the with the oxygen and the and the and the rainwater and the food that we need. You cannot see the destruction of that by human actions outside of uh, it being a, a profound spiritual uh, phenomenon, and we don't tend to think of it spiritually. We tend to think of it rationally. We think of it. Um, you know, in terms of science, in terms of politics, economics, technology. And what I'm saying is that when we start to address collapse and what we're doing to this planet spiritually, I think it opens up a door, a pathway to really powerful human action to actually turn things around.
0: Mm. And, I mean, you're not the only person to think that. Um, I snipped a section out of a recent uh, um, Session about science, you know, technology and um, the future, with Helen Norborg, Hodge, uh, Ananda Shiva, Mm -hmm. um, you know, quite a range of people discussing the role of science, and it it became very very passionate. It was extraordinary. So. you know, it it almost became a schism between people who thought we needed to be spiritually connected to the earth and people who thought we uh, adopt faith-based approaches at Mm -hmm. the cost of reason Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it it was a most extraordinary argument i've sort of synthesized it down to about a five Mm -hmm. minute Mm -hmm. edit of it which i might try and find during this hour because Mm -hmm. it's really it's really fascinating Mm -hmm. so when i hear that kind of passionate argument and inability to communicate between people who clearly care and uh you know highly conscious it makes me makes me th- want to ask you you know very deeply why you think that it's a spiritual response that's required uh, well if, if if
1: uh only for the fact that it doesn't seem to have been actually deployed up to this point and if you look at the scale and the speed of the ecological collapse that's taking place around us um and you draw the analogy to a war this is like total war that we are have engaged against the planet and we need to deploy every weapon system using the war analogy at our disposal to f- to fight to change human behavior to fix the problem and spirituality is one of the most powerful drivers of human action and it's broadly speaking it's completely ignored
0: in the environmental movement Oh, absolutely. There's there's an anathema to it. When, Mm. you know, when we first spoke about this three or four years ago, I was still very active in the Greens, and I was expressing similar views Mm -hmm. to that, that unless we have a spiritual dimension to this, we're not going to carry people forward. And, uh, you know... As a evidence-based, rational, political organisation, that was hey, like, you know, saying <laughs> I've just done a deal with the devil, and I want us all to march sideways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, also, uh, when uh, there's
1: there's a relatively low level of spiritual literacy in the West, and when I what I mean by that is that people, generally speaking, aren't very good at talking about spirituality because they don't fundamentally understand the subject. Of spirituality, and so part of my training in putting Vita together is to sort of get my head around the terminology and what you know spirituality can be understood as, and um, and one of the the other factors is that Western people tend to conflate spirituality with uh, as being anti science, as though there is this thing called the pragmatic reality that we live in, and then there is the spirituality. Whereas what I'm saying is that your spirituality can be grounded in Fact, your spir- spirituality ought to be grounded in reality. Okay, so for example, if you were to answer the big question, as Vita answers the big questions, where do we come from? Well, that's a question you'd ask a cosmologist, the people that know about the Big Bang and the expansion of the universe.
0: And on 4 z you are with me, Jeff Ebbs, in fashion by Dad. Uh, we're joined in this episode by Guy Lane, the author of Vita Awakening and a uh, founder of the uh, gaia based religion is that a fair description i uh, the term i use is um uh,
1: spiritual philosophy so i uh, approach this uh, with a model called blue ocean strategy which is where you look at something like religion and you take away all of the the nasty bits that people don't like the dogma and all of that uh, uh, the the observance of specific practices. And you take all, all of that away and what you're left with is something quite unique, which is the spiritual philosophy. And that's what I refer to as VEDA as. So.
0: Uh, nevertheless, you have applied for official recognition as a
1: religion. Uh, no, oh, indeed, not only have applied, but uh, 18 months ago we got uh, the paperwork through. So we have a registered religious institution and it was simply the best vehicle that we could find for what we were doing although we framed this as a spiritual philosophy
0: okay yeah. we'll come back and talk about the institution in mm-hmm. another conversation but i wanted to pick up on the point you made in uh, our previous chat where you said that uh, spirituality should be founded in reality in uh, vita awakening you write um you're talking about people being disconnected from their spirituality and thinking that it's something else mm-hmm. something other instead spirituality resides within the human central nervous system and is shaped by the senses and by ideas and experiences it is understandable mm-hmm. please explain yeah so um so a lot of people talk about spirituality
1: and they and they get and they go into this faith this thing called woo woo right woo woo is like you know, like oh, you know, spirituality is like it's not something. It's like it disappears if you if you try to analyse it or if you try to define it. That's that's part of the talking to a lot of people that call themselves spiritual in Western in the Western world. Uh, you find that this is sort of abstractness. Whereas what I'm saying is this thing can be understood and it, and it doesn't collapse it or make it less valuable just because it. Can okay, be understood. so help
0: me help me understand
1: it. <coughs> no, no, no. Well, one thing in my studies and I've studied this at master's level. Uh, uh, recently through a program um, was when you start collecting all of the science papers on spirituality you find that there's no commonly agreed to definition and so the definition of somebody that's approaching spirituality from the religious perspective will be different from somebody who's approaching it from a, a psychological perspective um, so what i've sort of tried to do is i sort of regard it as more as an umbrella concept uh, and there are core, five core themes uh, that I've drawn out um, for Vita to help people get their head around it. Um, and this is on page 70.
0: Are they um, Oh, yeah. Okay. I'm on yeah. page 48. Yeah. So I okay. Went, so so,
1: so to it. list them. So th- basically, if, we, if you focus on these five core themes, it gives you enough of what spirituality is that it's a useful meaningful term that you can work with this is not the the total this is not the absolute truth where all the others are wrong it's simply a frame of reference for spirituality that helps people get their head around it so fundamentally the five core themes are a golden rule so overarching constant you know uh, f- uh, uh, idea with w- uh, under which one lives one's life. So it's, in Christianity, that is do unto others as you would have well, them do unto. In you. fact, in most of the world's religions, it is that as well. Okay, so that. So that, how
0: would you express that in vita? Well,
1: um, everyone simply just missed the planet, so you put the planet into it. So do unto others and the planet as you do unto you unto unto. Okay, so yeah. the context is the planet. Uh, well, do unto others and the planet. Right, mm. so you just add the planet in, um, and then that becomes a frame of reference that you know that you can see your actions. You know, do you really want to be doing that to the planet? Because the, or you know, because if you do that to the planet, the planet's going to do that back to you. You know.
0: Okay. Next. Yep. Um, yep.
1: um So the next one would be uh, life's big questions. So we've addressed the first one. So uh, you know, uh, where do we come from? Talk to the cosmologists about the big bang. Talk about abiogenesis and the formation of life from the uh, minerals you know naturally occurring process and then the big question of course what happens when we die simply answered what happens to uh, the trees and the bees and the whales and the snails they get recycled back into the the biosphere right Mm. Um,
0: we're all made of stars
1: yeah, and then uh, another concept called peak experience is um, fundamental uh, in, in spirituality studies, and this comes down to those sort of moments. For, you know, To give an example, if you see a moon rise over a lake and you have that sense of elation and you have uh, what's referred to as timelessness and flow, you lose track of your normal senses. So these are key core concepts. Um, uh, the inner self, uh, which looks at our individual personalities, Um, and our choices of music and so forth Um, but also uh, within the inner self i refer to uh, what's called ecological self which is the concept of seeing ourselves as a part of nature of which we are the question is whether or not we have a heightened sense of that and then the concept called self-actualization which is really uh, the way that i use that term is to sort of describe the way that we can actually modify our inner selves um, uh, in light of changes in the environment. It's sort of like an internal
0: uh, evolutionary process. Now, as I listen to you talk, I think about your comment that the West has a warped view of spirituality. <clears throat> and one of the things that is very different about the Western view of spirituality and many other cultures is that we see it in terms of ourselves. And a lot of the mm. terms that you've just used mm. are about ourselves, you know, mm. Our mm. heightened awareness, or mm-hmm. the impact that it has on us. Mm. So surely, if the role of spirituality is to connect us in a to the planet or to nature in a way that prevents us from harming mm-hmm. that environment, which nurtures us we need some kind of trigger to take us out of ourselves, or we'll be able to see outside of ourselves. How does that relate to those Well, that comes back that to that about? concept
1: of, of the um, uh, ecological self, which is a term that I've poached from a, um, a Norwegian philosopher called Arne Naeus, who wrote about this back in the 70s, uh, part of the deep ecology movement, which is mm-hmm. seeing you know, where people see themselves as an in, as a component of the ecosystem as opposed to the way that we have been framed um, largely through Christianity um, as separate from the ecosystem. You know, some outside force created an ecosystem and that outside force also created humanity, right? Whereas in reality... Well, you blame Christianity, I blame the Greeks. But anyway, we'll we'll well, put that to one side. Yeah, well, I remember the Greeks uh, actually did have a goddess of Earth, so Gaia, a Greek goddess. Mm. So... Um, uh, the, the final one on the list here, though, back to the five, uh, is sacred values, um, and this is important thing, so, and I think this is a really important thing for environment movement. When, when I go and attend these street protests, as I do occasionally, and you know, and I'm angry at the government... I'm angry at the government for trampling on my sacred values. And one of my sacred values is a biosphere that has integrity, the integrity of the biosphere. Uh, One of the sacred values that I hold is that the atmosphere shouldn't have 416 parts per million CO2 in it. And And so I frame these things spiritually... Whereas I think that most people that attend environmental protests, environmental activists, frame them very rationally, even though I think they are actually motivated spiritually, they just don't know the language. And again, this comes back to this idea of spiritual literacy. And this is why I've tried to make this idea of spirituality approachable by breaking it down into these five themes.
0: And so what's the advantage of being able to frame them spiritually? Why, why shouldn't we just frame them rationally? well like i mentioned
1: before we're in a we're in a war of survival we've got to try every try every tool and this hasn't been properly tried and secondly if you observe um, uh, masters of fostering spirituality change they bring about the most profound radical behavioral change and i'll give you an extreme example just to go way to the extreme um, I study uh, the work of a, a sociologist called Scott Atron who visits the front lines of these internecine conflicts in the Middle East, and he gets inside the heads of these fighters. And some of these, and he and he does a lot of work with ISIS. Right now, ISIS recruits people online, and then after a certain amount of time with the handler talking to these young kids, like 20-year-old kids that just want to play football, not interested in politics or religion, typically don't know much about the the Quran, Right. And they are recruited online and then maybe they send a bus fare, they go to a camp and after three months they come out and these guys are ferocious fighters for the caliphate, strapped in explosives, who will readily die to protect their newly found sacred value of protecting the caliphate. That is a that is a profound behavioural change that is fostered not by appealing to their rational minds but appealing spirituality to spirituality, appealing to their ideas about where they fit into this timeline of where do we come from and what happens when we die. The same thing happens to a lesser extent in um, you know in the streets around us uh, with Pentecostal Christians. You know they'll say, "Oh, did you know that Jesus loves you?" No, or shouldn't have said that. You know, three months later you're handing over 10% of your pre-tax, you're attending church three times a day, you're reading the Bible, you're profound behavioural changes by appealing to spirituality. Now, Greenpeace doesn't do that, okay? greenpeace doesn't appeal to spirituality it appeals to our rational minds that you know save the whale because of this protect the forest because of that it's very rational so what i'm trying to say is that if we start to appeal environmentally to people's spirituality i think there's a possibility we can actually foster the radical behavioral change in people that the environmental movement has been desperate to try and get
0: okay there's quite a few things to unpack in that Um, one which I'm going to put to the side is that you've almost presented it as a marketing technique which is not what I think you mean Um, the one that I want to pick up first though is that you've used war analogies quite a lot Mm. and obviously in a time of great uh, military conflict war is going to be on our minds but surely it's really important if we're trying to frame mindsets and create, you know, deep behavioural change. We need to be very, very careful about the language and the analogies yep. that yep. we use. Yep. And I wonder about the wisdom of yep. um, putting spirituality on a war footing.
1: Uh, no, and that's that's a fair call. And the reason why I tend back when I tend towards that trope. A lot is because it's actually really easy to get your head around that analogy it's mm. a very good analogy it's not good in as much as we want to be you know I mean, I'm mean i pacifist I'm not interested in is atrocious but it's uh, it's easy to describe because then you can use the terms like weapon and winning and armies and battles so it's a good frame of reference in terms of its uh, you know, how you can use it and mm. I totally take your point and if I can find a pacifist Better version. Version. I'll yep. flip to
0: that straight. All right. right. Well, that can be a, a little challenge. I'm just a hairy man in a waxed world. And we're all hairy here at 10 past three on 4 Z in uh, Fashion by Dad. I'm with uh, Guy Lane and we've been talking about spirituality, science and so on. I just want to play a little piece from the science and localization uh, conference. So there was World Localization Day. It ran for a week, um, and the one of the final sessions was called "Finding the Way Home." So the discussion was ostensibly about what home means and how we find our way home, how we have a, a connection to place. Uh, the speakers that you're about to hear are Ellen Noah Bancroft from northern New South Wales, Stefan Harding from the Schumacher College in England, and Manish Jain from the Learning Society's Unconference, uh, with Helena Norberg-Hodge in the chair.
2: Imagine we're, a, and you hear this concept, Gaia, you know, it's come from science. And you hear, hey, it's about the relationships between all the living organisms and the rocks and the atmosphere and the water and how the whole planet is one gigantic organism, one great living being. This has come from our science. There's nothing. Uh, I'd
3: also (laughs) argue it's come from psychedelics. I would also say the embodied form of what you're talking about is also deep ceremony, trance-like state, psychedelic, astral um, astral plane projecting. I think there are different ways. I think I agree with what you're saying, but again, it's, it's looking at it in a, um, it, it's a way that we can comprehend it by the mind.
4: I yes. actually think if we examine indigenous worldviews, we will uh-huh. find the equivalent of Gaia. In other words, we'll find mm-hmm. that most of them understood the inextricable oneness of life. And certainly, yeah. you know, if you go back to Taoism, and if you look at Buddhism, there, there are different words. There's a, But essentially, life is one. All of life is one was a, a teaching of most of those cultures. Yeah. I'm
2: not saying it's the only way to describe <laughs> it. If, if we dis- disregard that aspect of ourselves which we've cultivated so much in the West, which we call science, and not the way we do science now, we are going to, we won't be whole. We've got to, it's, it's got to be part of it. And there's nothing, you see, it just makes your, your, um, your experience even deeper.
4: Well, I'd like to you hear what my, nice. nice. my niece, yeah. would you have to would,
5: say? So what concerns me is not science, but the dogma of science, the global dogma of science. Of course, where, of course, uh, yeah. And I think that, you know, I would, you know, one thing I, you know, and try to share with different learners in our ecosystems is, you know, uh, a deep humility that needs to be there. And one of the ways is that is, you know, I I try to share some of the greatest blunders of science, (laughs) you know. Like and, and really saying that science can like the like the nuclear bomb, for example. That's very really good. Yeah. And, uh, and and Einstein being the only, you know, one of the only scientists to apologize that we made a great blunder here. I think that you know these these kinds of things need to be much openly more openly discussed. And also how science has become very fragmented and people get hyper specialized in their mode without and lose the big picture they wouldn't very few scientists would be joining a conversation on big picture activism for right, example right. but that's not um,
2: science i mean si- yeah i understand i'm with you man well no, that's that's the but thing
5: science. what i'm saying is that that needs to be cleaned up because that's all masking itself as part of the scientific dogma okay. and the third thing i just want to say the link of science to global capitalism now really it has become a vehicle of global capitalism and we need to again if you want to keep promoting science and defend it stefan what i would say that we need to clean up these things because wait, of course we
0: do. Wait, wait, wait,
5: wait. I like did to you? see Stefan is getting, is ready to jump out
2: of his chair. so I'm... <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, no, I'm with you. Well, let me just say, respond briefly. Yeah, I'm with you, yeah. Manish, of course. Yeah. I'm talking, but well, what is science? Science is sitting with a leaf and wondering, where did you come from? What made you? It's asking those very deep questions of a leaf. And when you do that with the deepest sincerity, Deep, what do you find? There are chloroplasts, there are cells. Those chloroplasts were once free-living bacteria. 3,500 million years. Wait a minute. I'm discovering deep time here. Just by sitting with a leaf, I'm discovering deep time. And you can feel the level of connection that's, that's, that's possible with this. And I think we need to use science that's science. That that for me is science. But I
3: also would argue that perhaps science is a little bit behind the times and that actually most scientific knowledge that is coming out indigenous people have known just through basically living. You know, it's different to look at a cell and intervene it with medical um, intervention than to see that leaf dancing on the tree and know it is alive because you are seeing and witnessing it through oneness which is something that we're also limited to you know if you know and about neural pathways and the concept of what we're using our brains for in this modern world we 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 don't even comprehend a fraction of the way that we used to think as human beings because part of our our lights are turned off in our brain and that part is the part that connects us so deeply to the natural world and the one that makes us want to observe it, and find the answers to it, and not just be in it, and accept it. I I think also, I
4: think just one thing, I think we also have to, Stefan, look at when Monsanto invests billions to create mm -hmm. genetic engineering, this is not a nice little man sitting contemplating a leaf and getting close to it. It's it's the it, What you're pointing really.
2: to? You're all yeah. pointing yeah. to the After shadow. Really you're story, pointing really? to the shadow of science. You're right. Science has a big shadow. I'm sure localization could have a big shadow too. If you're not careful, oh <laughs> yes. you know, we so could weird. start yeah. killing other communities Definitely. over there. We really,
4: Henry. I don't see many. Yeah, there's a shadow
2: in everything, and I think you're pointing to the shadow of science quite rightly. But you're missing what it has to contribute. It's very interesting, you know. I'm a localizer like you, but I do feel a strong anti-science, which is understandable. But I, somehow I'm defa- I must defend science in, in what it can really yeah. offer us, you know. Yeah. Otherwise, I no, don't think. No, I'm,
3: I'm I'm not anti-science. I, I just it's think it's time for science to sit down and be quiet for a little while, you know. Like that, science has spoken a little bit too much, and now it's time for perhaps not science to talk and for something else to lead our culture
2: yeah no i agree but science you see that's like excluding a child from from the conversation if you exclude science science is a child needs to be there you i don't need, think need, we're, i
5: don't think that's what we're saying stefan i think uh, oh, it's going oh, to a bit extreme but uh i think the point is that this stefan was basically talking about wisdom and philosophy and i think the idea the need is now to reclaim that within those traditions within science and re-highlight those and that these kinds of conversations might be very integral to that.
0: You are on Fashion by Dad with me, Jeff Ebbs. I'm joined by Guy Lane of Vita. And we just heard uh, Eleanor Bancroft and Stephen Harding going hammer and tongs with uh, Helena Nor- Norberg-Hodge in the chair, unsuccessfully keeping them apart. but not much blood was spilled in the recording of that uh, conversation. So, uh, Guy, is it time for science to sit down and uh, shut up as uh, Ella Noah Bancroft suggests? Um, No, I don't think so. I think think part of the
1: problem is that typically uh, in the West people regard spirituality as being something that is innately anti-science, that there is a spiritual view of the world and then there is, independent of that, is a scientific view of the world. I just don't think that's very helpful, and I think it's um, artificial. I don't think it actually makes any sense if you were to use the example of the worldview of the indigenous people, as as the woman was saying. Um, you know, uh, the Aboriginal people in Australia shaped um, boomerangs, and they they shaped boomerangs based on 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 reality uh, uh, and the physics of you know and trial mm, you know the airplane wing the, and the boomerang yeah, have exactly so there, the there's same there's, there's a there's leading a, edge
0: and trailing edge yeah
1: exactly now they didn't they didn't do it with supercomputers they didn't they didn't develop the aerodynamics of the boomerang using the same tools that we do to these days for aircraft but they nonetheless practiced a form of a form of science there's no there's no separation these are all different wisdoms right spirituality ultimately comes down to beliefs and you can have beliefs that are grounded in truths, or you can have beliefs that are grounded in abstracts, like the Flying Spaghetti Monster, for example. Okay, so just because something is grounded in belief, it doesn't mean to say it shouldn't be anchored to reality. I think that's very important.
0: But isn't, isn't, um, isn't a belief something that you uh, will defend against the evidence? Um, well, it certainly can be. I mean,
1: I mean that, and that's the thing is that uh, belief doesn't need evidence, right? So, if somebody holds a particular belief and somebody comes along and says evidence that runs counter to it, um, then because it's a belief, you know, you, know, you can disregard the evidence. Right?
0: And it's so, isn't that the problem? Is that why rational people, like Dawkins, for example, write books like *The God Delusion*, mm. because they are concerned that Belief denies or doesn't allow evidence into
1: the well, frame. Well, I, 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 I come back to the, the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster again. I I, like, I really like using that as an analogy. This is the idea that the world was created by a bowl of pasta with meatballs in it, called the Flying Spaghetti Monster. They refer to it by the non-gendered pronoun of Quab. And if ever you see uh, a rope hanging off a fence, you go, oh, Quab, I've, I've detected, you know, Quab has spoken to me. I've been touched by his noodly appendage.
0: Mm. And I mean, now, there are people but, in Brisbane who've been married under the religion yeah, okay, of the flying my, my spaghetti my monster. The point that I'm making is
1: that um, you don't, there doesn't have to be a flying spaghetti monster for you to have belief in it, right? There doesn't have to be a pink teapot floating in the atmosphere for you to believe in it. The trouble is when you believe in things that have got no tangible reality, Uh, you kind of a little you can be you can get lost easily. Right? Whereas if you So so why so,
0: so why talk about belief? Why include belief as part of the framing?
1: Well, because I believe that all all of spirituality falls within the realm of belief. So, so the so your your um, uh, the 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 uh, the golden rule that you follow is something that you believe is the best golden rule, right? You don't have factual evidence for that, and also we're starting to actually now go into this sort of semantics of the distinction between, um, you know, knowledge and belief. This mm, but
0: I'm not belief. worried about the semantics. I'm not trying to uh, fine pick knowledge. What I'm concerned about is that you have detected like many of us have detected that we are not going to win the climate change debate shift the population towards nurturing biodiversity at the expense of at SCOMO would have it their weekend in the four-wheel drive Mm. um we're not going to do that rationally so we have to appeal to people's belief systems Mm. and so That's the motivation. The concern, the the problem whenever I've tried to have these discussions with rational people who come from that evidence-based scientific background is that they will not buy into a belief-based system because they are concerned that as soon as we accept belief as a cause for action we throw away our capacity to respond to evidence
1: yeah 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 so so veda's veda's belief is that the best way to answer where we came from is to talk to the cosmologists and the biologists and so it's a belief that's grounded in science okay and so i guess what i'm saying is that you know you can believe something which is totally abstract like god or the flying spaghetti monster or you can believe uh, in something that is grounded in physical realities, right? And there's a choice there, and I think that there's a there's a
0: there's, a, there's a different outcomes uh, depending on how you mm. how you pass. Okay, so to go any further into that question does become semantic. semantic yeah. A another way that I would uh, look at it is that when you join a 12-step program like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, one of the steps is to acknowledge a higher power. power. Now, I've spoken to many adventurers who've, you know, walked mountain ranges or spent months in the Antarctic and so on, who almost um, all of them say that their experience of being in awe of the world has changed their position on many, many issues. And so they recognize the earth as a higher power, Mm -hmm. and they do that without giving up their rationality. Mm -hmm. And so to me, in that story, in talking to them, I connect belief, spirituality or whatever with experience without giving up rationality but I'm not sure how one does that in terms of putting together a pocketbook like Vita Awakening Mm -hmm. because I haven't managed to express what shines out of them when they talk about meeting a bear in the forest Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. having to work out how to survive when there's an animal that could kill them with one blow Mm -hmm. That's starting to lick its <laughs> lips. It looks like it yeah. is thinking about breakfast. Yeah, yeah. yeah you know, yeah, they yeah. they felt an awe running through them, and when they talk to me about it, my hair stands on end. You know, I can feel start to feel my bell's boil as mm. theirs must have been on the day on the mountain. Yeah, yeah. So we need awe. We need uh, we need to be in awe, and so to worship in that peak sense, experience, a yeah. higher power, peak experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I think it's it so easy can't... to fall back into that argument that we just heard those people having at the um, yeah we well, you've got people talk
1: about spirituality and people talk about science and as if there's some sort of a battle between the two where in reality it's I think it's fixed. I was uh, sitting in front of the TV a few weeks ago and, uh, and I had one of those moments of just like absolute awe just from glancing up at the TV and there was a underwater photography of the guy putting a probe into this huge sea sponge on the seafloor and then pulled some of this material out and they were doing PCR polymerase chain reaction uh, and and looking at the genetic the genetics of the sea sponge and mapping out where back in time billions of years ago there was a common ancestor between the humans and the sea sponges and I was just I was just totally awestruck not only by nature right but the science
0: which was a tool by which we can actually understand nature mm. yeah, that's stefan harding and mm. the little man mm. looking mm. at the leaf and mm. going yeah, into deep yeah, time yeah, yeah. guy we could talk for hours we've been talking for an hour so i'm going to play you out uh with uh share seeing gershwin's number <laughs> it ain't necessarily so rightly really so
6: inventor and explorer every teacher of morals every corrupt politician every superstar every supreme leader every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mode of dust suspended in a sunbeam the earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena think how eager they are to kill one another how fervent their hatreds our posturings our imagined self-importance the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark in our The only home we've ever known. Zed. triple Z. Zed.
0: triple Zed. Zed. triple, Zed. Zed. triple Zed. Uh, We just heard Carl Sagan with pale blue dot. Now uh, Joan of Arc, in her white armour, is our blazer of glory here on Fashion by Dad. In this episode, most of us know Joan of Arc burned at the stake. We know she's French. We don't know much more about it. She was young. She was 19 when she was burned. And the reason she's famous, the reason she was sainted, the reason she was burned is because she believed that uh, God had spoken to her and said that uh, she should fight on behalf of the French against the English and she led the French army to a famous battle in Orléans, which was a turning point in the Hundred Year War. I'm sure there were many turning points in the Hundred Years' War, but uh, one of them was when the French army basically faced down the English in Orléans. She wasn't on the completely winning side, though. The English with their... Army um, took over the area that she was in, captured her, and burned her at the stake. But we'll hear more about that as we go. The reason that we're picking on out her today is because of her armour. With his army, Jean Joan was sent. The king had caused armour to be made for her, wrote the Duc de Allenton in The Trial of Nullification. By the time the Hundred Years' War, armour making had developed into a highly skilled profession. The latest improvements were incorporated into armour as well as better steel. While we do not know with exactitude what the maid's armour was actually looked like, the print above, I'm mating that to the Fashion by Dad Facebook and Instagram, is a fairly excellent representation from contemporary sources that are in existence and those which are most common. The description, white harness, means that the armour is without any embellishments. In the miniseries Joan of Arc with Lili Sabisky, the armour she wears is not white harness. She has a lease on her chest and a lease around the besages That's the floral emblem, the three-pointed, star, uh, so common in French three-pointed flower, not star, symbol, it's not really a flower. Contrary to modern belief, armour at the time was about 50 pounds or so. So it's nonsense that uh, 19th century knights had to be lifted onto their horses by a crane. The constable of France, Berrand de Grousselen, was noted for leaping onto his horse and climbing rope ladders while fully clothed in his armour. Joan of Arc's armour was made for fighting in. She could be found in the thick of the action's urging the troops on. Uh, We're reading from the Duke de Alencon's trial of nullification, the history of the account of Joan of Arc, where she was found guilty of wearing men's trousers and hearing the voice of God. The voice of God had caused her to put on the men's trousers and uh, lead the French in battle against the English and the English who had the Burgundian region or the Burgundy region of France on their side. though it's like a good Burgundy. goes well with beefsteak in Britain. Anyway, the English and the Burgundians uh, captured Joan and burned her at the stake, not for leading the French into war successfully and beating the crap out of them, but for wearing men's trousers. Uh, the Duke de Allentown writing the uh, history of the trial against her, notes that Jean made the attack in which I followed her. As our men, well, this is quoting a witness, as our men were invading the place, the Earl of Suffolk made proclamation that he wished to speak with me, but we did not listen, and the attack continued. Jean was on a ladder, her standard in her hand, when her standard was struck and she hit herself on the head with a stone and was partly spent, which struck her head covering without visor, known as a collotte. She was thrown to the ground, but raising herself, she cried, Friends! Friends! Come on! Come on! Our Lord has doomed the English. They are ours. Keep a good heart. Jeanne was there, wounded by an arrow, which penetrated half a foot between the neck and the shoulder, but she continued, nonetheless, to fight, taking no remedy for her wounds. That uh, witness there was Jean Bastard of Orleans, Count de Uh, the king's troops remained there from morning to night, and Jean was wounded, but it was necessary to take off her armour to dress the wound. But hardly was it dressed when she armed herself afresh and went to rejoin her followers at the attack and the assault, which had gone on from morning without ceasing. That was quoting Louis de Conte from the Trial of Nullification. So, Joan. Um, basically face down the English. Here is a scene from Bresson's film, Joan of Arc, where the young young, uh, 17 years old at the time, rides out to face the English and asks them to go home in the name of God.
3: I have a message for your King Henry. It is a message from God. Go home. Go now, in peace. If you do not go now, you will be buried in this field. I've seen enough blood. But if you want more, I can't stop you. I can only warn you that it will be your blood, not ours. I'm waiting for your answer.
0: Never wait for miracles. Stand by to attack. No,
7: please,
3: my lord let
2: A bloody miracle.
6: She was on her white horse alone, facing the whole English army, and she drove them away. And now, Orléans is free.
1: We lost Orléans. I want that girl. I want that girl.
8: with the best film studios collaborate with amazing artists and create content for the brands you love SAE is all about getting you industry ready sooner. SAE's industry based courses in animation, audio and music, design, film, games, and creative industries are hands on, meaning you'll gain experience working on projects alongside the industry's best. Join the SAE crew this September and graduate with the skills and connections to kickstart your creative career. Enroll now at sae.edu.au
0: proud sponsors of 4Triple Z SAE RTO 273 We just heard uh, Jean de Arc uh, telling the English to go home outside the siege of Orleans in 1429 uh, Joan of Arc was tried as a heretic not because she was a woman nor because she heard voices but because she heard voices telling her to attack the English Hobbins rights Joan believed that God favoured the French. God was on her side. As long as she insisted that her voices were saints telling her to attach the English, she was doomed. On May the 24th, after being locked in a male's prison because she was wearing men's trousers, Joan signed a retraction and on the condition she would dress as a woman, her death sentence was reduced to life in prison. But four days later, she said the voices had returned and she was again found dressed in men's clothing. All 27 trial masters pronounced her a relapsed heretic. We say and determine that you have falsely imagined revelations and divine apparitions, that you are a pernicious, temptress, presumptuous, credulous, rash, superstitious, a false prophetess, a blasphemer against God and his saints, scornful of God in his sacraments, a transgressor of divine law, sacred doctrine and ecclesiastical decrees, that you are seditious, cruel, apostate, schismatic, straying in many ways from our faith and in these ways you have rash sinned against God and his church. OK
7: moose. Baguette and Brie Are you ready? I'm Joan of Arc from Dom Remy Religious visions came to me God said save France from the English and make Dauphin Charles King Dauphin means heir to the throne wearing dresses, bought a pair of trousers, no blouses said I wanna fight Angleterre Charles let me join the army, army told me why being prisoner was not my style tried escaping from my captors vile but then the English who'd fought me bought me made me stand You're charged with sorcery. You're just jealous because God speaks to me. You say you speak to saints. In this discourse, what language do they speak? French, of course. Ha! Now you're in prison. They have failed you. I say it's God's plan that you're my jailer. Here's a trick question in that case. Do you think that you are in God's grace? If I am not, may God put me there And if I am, may God so keep me
8: Oh, your smart remarks go round the houses You're guilty of heresy And wearing
0: men's trousers
7: Despite my testimony, <laughs> money, money. condemn for reasons, phony, phony, phony so
0: now I'm a saint Uh, now delving into a dark story, the story of a murder Perfume a book from the 80s I think by Patrick Suskind. name of the book is Perfume in the period of which we speak there reigned in the cities a stench barely conceivable to us modern men and women. The streets stank of manure, the courtyards of urine, the stairwells stank of mouldering wood and rat droppings, and the kitchens of spoiled cabbage and mutton-fat The unaired parlours stank of stale dust, the bedrooms of greasy sheets, damp feather beds, and the pungently sweet aroma of chamber pots. The stench of sulphur rose from the chimneys, the stench of caustic lies from the tanneries, and from the slaughterhouses came the stench of congealed blood. People stank of sweat and unwashed clothes. From their mouths came the stench of rotting teeth. From their bellies that of onions, and from their bodies... If they were no longer young came the stench of rancid cheese and sour milk and tumorous disease. The river stank and the marketplaces stank and the churches stank. It stank beneath the bridges and in the palaces. The peasant stank as did the priest and the apprentice as did the master's wife and the whole of the aristocracy stank. Even the king himself stank, stank like a rank lion and the queen like an old goat, summer and winter. For in the 18th century, there was nothing to hinder bacteria busy at decomposition. And so there was no human activity, either constructive or destructive, no manifestation of germinating or decaying life that was not accompanied by stench. It's now time for a storytime story here on Fashion by Dad. We just read the introduction to perfume about the stink of Paris. And in that world of odour, odour and odour, the um, perfume was an important antidote to the stink of that bacteria. So perfumiers were very uh, important suppliers to the wealthy. Perfumes like Pellisiers could make a shambles of the whole market. If the rage one year was hungry water and Baldini accordingly stocked up on lavender, bergamot and rosemary to cover for the demand he came Pellissier with his air de musk an ultra heavy musk accent suddenly everyone had to reek like an animal and Baldini had to rework his rosemary into hair oil and sew the lavender into chasse. If, however, he then bought adequate supplies of musk, civet and castor for the next year, Pellissier would take a notion to create a perfume called Forest Blossom, which would be an immediate success. And when, after long nights of experiment or costly bribes, Baldini had finally found out the ingredients in Forest Blossom, Pellissier would trump him again with Turkish Nights or Lisbon Spice or Bouquet, bouquet de Cour, or some such damn thing. The man was indeed a danger to the whole trade with his reckless creativity. It made you wish for a return to the old rigid guild laws, made you wish for draconian measures against this nonconformist, against this inflationist of scent.
7: You're like the rest of the south. You're probably from down south. These foreign areas, Sydney and Melbourne, they come. We we stood at the border gates with a stick. You couldn't knock them. Couldn't stop them. You couldn't stop them coming in uh, with a stick. They like come in like a lot of flock of homing pigeons coming in when it gets cold down there. Uh, of course.
0: By Dan. By Dan. By dad. Well, we're all bad here on Fashion by Dad, where it's 5am here on Fashion by Dad. My name's Jeff Ebbs and I'm with Claire Tracy Art. Good morning to you, Claire.
8: Good morning and what a beautiful morning it is today. Did you see the moon on
0: the way here? Sorry, can you just say that again? I turned on the wrong mic.
8: <laughs> Good morning and I said what a beautiful morning it is today. Did you see the moon on the way here?
0: Uh, no, I didn't. It was cloudy and raining when I left home, but I did see the moon rise last night. What a magnificent moon. It's an e- uh, equinox moon too.
8: It feels like a, um, like a magical, fortuitous time of year.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, we had a uh, fellow, Guy Lane, um, come in earlier on Fashion by Dad and talk about the uh, Vita uh, religion, a religion based on Gaia. And uh, one of the things that Vita does is have a full moon uh, festival party uh, every month. I'm unable to go to Vita Awakening uh, tonight. And guys left us with a copy of the pocketbook Vita Awakening, dear listener. So if you would like a copy of the pocketbook, you can uh, text us here at Fashion by Dad on 04206267 double three. Now, Claire, you were saying that you have um, heard some of the other tracks from the Metallica Blacklist.
8: I was referring to the Miley Cyrus track that I think. Like number one or something in the rock charts in the States.
0: Mm. Well, just the amount of metal that's around. I've discovered this whole new sort of, you know, there's symphonic metal and melodic metal and folk metal and a lot of the artists that I've been discovering here on Fashion by Dad and sharing with you, dear listener, um, have all of a sudden popped up all on this Metallica Black album. So it's a sort of convergence. I've been on this exploratory journey trying all these different genres and all of a sudden they appear on one album all uh, worshipping at the altar of Metallica. Amazing.
8: And I've been following, you know, like any young woman, you know, you're aware of who Miley Cyrus is and who she's changed in the media over the years, from being Hannah Montana to now being number one, singing a rock track with possibly the world's greatest rock band. Um, and whatever you think of that, you've got to admire her for flipping the script and kind of creating her
0: own presence. So it was Miley Cyrus Hannah Montana?
8: Yes, yeah, so she was Hannah Montana. She was a Disney star. Uh, and her godmother is Dolly Parton, and she took a leaf out of her book and was like, well... You know, whatever you say about me, I'm going to do it more.
0: Wow. Um, I listened to Dolly Parton's America a little while ago, which is a nine-part podcast produced by, you know, a young fella who hadn't sort of realised the depth of Dolly's contribution to American culture. And so as the listener, you become blown away as he becomes blown away by... You know. she's
8: incredible she um never learned to read growing up and so she sponsors a program where she donates books to kids in low-income areas she pays for people's college degrees
0: mm. yeah and uh, dolly world the um theme park that is de- dedicated to her includes a uh, uh, what would you call it, a replica, a facsimile of the schoolroom where she went without learning to read as part of it's, um, you know, telling the story of her life.
8: I did not know that. I want to go to Dolly World now. Oh,
0: amazing. It sounds amazing. You have to listen to the nine-part uh, podcast. The blackness of the night sky here in Brisbane turning into a deep, deep navy. Vampires alert. Time to start heading home for the safety of the coffin. Early workers seeking the thrill of a coffee and new late night wanderers for the final munch fest of the dawn hours, of the dark hours. Dawn will be upon us shortly here on the east coast of Australia. Little Sims, I love you, I hate you, um, story about her love-hate relationship with her father who, by some means not specified in my hearing of the song, stole her childhood one of the many songs this week uh, dealing with abuse of some kind or another. There's a bit of a um, theme emerging in female hip-hop of um, women holding their own against blokes.
8: What do you think of that? Particularly because you've curated this list as a man, as a, a white older man, how do you hold space for those stories
0: well, I think in one way it's an easy way for me to uh, confront the issue if I start going and talking to my female friends or my daughters or whatever about it, um, you know, it sort of becomes personal, uncomfortable reasonably quickly. Whereas if I downloaded a whole lot of songs by female hip-hop artists, I can... Uh, engage in the discussion and the process, yeah, you know, without it getting too personal. So, in one sense, that's, you know, that's an honest reflection.
8: And why do you find it uncomfortable?
0: Is oh, it well, that... No, no, I, I think that the um, the challenge that we have as a society and we have as people, like even, say, two of us, as a man and a woman trying to navigate... The, Uh, relationships in the awareness of the oppression of women by men that has gone on for centuries is that our sense of self and so many of our social mores are so tangled up in it that you can't help tripping over those biases and those prejudices in all sorts of ways and so as soon as you start to honestly appraise it you think oh my goodness there am I you know Mm -hmm.
8: And I think within that, it's um, leaving room for the acceptance of error in trying to negotiate these tricky spaces, which is a nice segue into our blazer of glory this week.
0: Oh, you've brought a blazer of glory with you, Claire. I
8: have, so I think uh, it's good to surprise you with this one.
0: Mm, Indeed.
8: Have you seen in the media the Cara Delveen outfit that she wore to the Met Gala? which was a white bulletproof vest with the message, Peg the Patriarchy.
0: Peg the Patriarchy. No, I haven't. I think that I heard a young man talking about it on the radio, though.
8: So what's interesting, apart from the fact that it's a really controversial, you know, kind of new wave feminist message that uh, Delvine is wearing, is that she appropriated it from a black, I think cis uh, I wouldn't call her an academic, maybe like a like a designer and an artist, and uh, didn't credit her with this message, which is part of her like her brand, and she sells merchandising with the logo "peg the patriarchy," and when Delveen wore it, she didn't move into that space or hold space for this woman, where her slogan "peg the patriarchy" was about sex education, and it was about feminism. And it was about, you know, feminism from marginalised spaces. So I think uh, after the next song, we might explore this further with a couple of quotes by, and I'm just going to look up her name, uh, Luna Matatas uh, is a sexual pleasure coach and proud queer woman of colour.
0: I'm just being caught in the act of posting the Peg the Patriarchy costume. We call it a costume.
8: I would call it a costume, yeah.
0: Mm. Um, Worn by uh, Cara Delvain.
8: And appropriated from um, Matatas, who is a black queer sex educator.
0: Mm. So um, you've uh, raised this. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, layers to unpack there. Um, can you start unpacking them for us?
8: Well, I think it's interesting that Delveen's um, use of this phrase, which is, I think, in an outfit made by Dior, was she pegged the patriarchy. Oh, it's kind of like a bit of stick it to the man, I, I'm quoting here. Um, and Matadas came back with saying, you know, she's she's deeply misunderstood the phrase. That's not what this is about, um, And it would have been so easy to give credit. It's such an extension of the tools of patriarchy, says Matatus, to have competition, to have very callous ways of being in the same spaces together. We're both feminists. Let's lift each other up. So I think that harks back to what we're talking about, holding space for these difficult conversations and within that crediting, you know, who you're talking about and the spaces that you're talking about.
0: Well, you can't have an honest conversation without being honest. That's part of the logic of what you were saying, isn't it?
8: And so Matatas goes on to say, um, in her use of the phrase, peg the patriarchy, it's about subverting a system of oppression that impacts all genders and is upheld by the behaviours and ideas of white colonial masculinity.
0: So has Kara tried to justify her theft of that intellectual property or has she just ignored it?
8: I think she's just ignoring it. I haven't seen her response in the media.
0: Hmm. And uh, in the media that you've been watching, listening to, observing, has there been a lot of discussion of the issues that you're raising or has it just been, wow, look at what Cara's wearing?
8: It started off as, wow, ooh, Cara's wearing, you know, a phrase that's a bit, refers to anal sex and women having um, wearing strap on and you know having anal sex with men and it's all about you know women standing up against men but now the conversation has shifted to the fact that she has appropriated this phrase from a black queer sex educator without crediting her or really understanding what the phrase was meant to have intended and the depth behind it
0: hmm well can we just talk about the phrase and what was intended and the depth behind it because when i see the words peg the uh, patriarchy. I can think of two uses of the word peg. One is to sort of, you know, pl- place a limiting sort of notch. You can't go any higher than this. You've been pegged. The other is throwing things violently at someone. You know, he pegged rocks at me. And I don't think that either of those <laughs> meanings That's is exactly not, what we're talking about. That is about. not
8: what it comes from. It actually comes from, um, uh, I think it was a, a sex columnist. Dan Savage, uh, and he wrote that pegging and the heterosexualization of anal sex um, was this coin was precisely to mark it as a straight act rather than a gay act, to be um, of benefit to like anxious straight people. So again, it's this it's this idea of um, you so know,
0: it, it's you know stick it up the patriarchy
8: exactly exactly. Mm. Um, but in its you know its deeper meaning, it was to symbolize the fact that you know, these heteronormative spaces are not being open to people of colour, people, um, you know, that do identify as queer. And so, by Delveen, you know, uh, you know, a cis, very, you know, white, famous woman to wear this phrase without crediting it or the message behind it, she's not holding space. For mm. the originator of the time,
0: she, she could use her position of power and influence to carry that message in, and uh, by carrying the message in in a uh, wholehearted, open manner, uh, it, you know, recognizing the person who's created. What's that person's name? Martin
8: Matatas
0: Metates, yeah. So she Luna
8: Metates.
0: Luna Metatus. She could make space for Luna Matatas and carry that message forward in a, a you know holistic and interesting way.
8: And she gives a great explanation about why she is using the term Peg the Patriarchy in um, her sex education, but also in her merchandising. She sells... Is
0: this Metatis? Or metatis. Para?
8: She sells the shirts with the hashtag Peg the Patriarchy on it. And she says, "'It's about subversion, subverting a system of oppression "'that impacts all genders "'and is upheld by the behaviours and ideas of colonial masculinity. "'Patriarchy has no gender, but it affects all genders.'" I started to untangle myself from the messages and conditioning of patriarchy and it slowly impacted what turned me on and who was, uh, I was attracted to.
0: Well, there you have a pretty juicy stuff for 23 minutes to 6am in the morning. Here's Indian artist Kahnvikt, uh with a tr- new track, Closer, which also deals with marriage rituals and the patriarchy the film clip shows the young woman being um, uh, dressed as a bride and unwillingly uh, confronting her uh, man who goes through these rituals of submission but the Hindu gods come to the party and help her uh, escape that oppression um, not quite pegging the patriarchy in this case but at least
8: subverting it
0: Hmm, indeed
8: so how do you feel as a man to talk about issues of the patriarchy and also to hold space in a respectful way for these artists that you're presenting and their stories that they're singing about through hip-hop culture?
0: Well, I'm, I'm interested. So there's a part of me that sort of... Um you know wants to deal with the issue because it's exciting it's about sex it's about power it's about my relationship with women and I want to understand that better because life is full of missteps and mistakes and unless you deal with them you don't learn and grow so uh, you know, it's an issue that is important to me and it's one thing to hear other people talking about it and to hear it discussed, but it's different to discuss it yourself. Ultimately, what I would like to do is find the male voice in the dialogue because most of the men that I hear are defensive or just talking rubbish. Uh, and What I hear coming from a lot of these women are very powerful, very complex messages that warrant some unpacking in themselves but I don't think that it's appropriate for an old white male the stale pale male like myself to do that unpacking so I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to talk about it with you um, but you know in terms of how I feel there's quite you know there's quite a lot in uh, in that to consider.
8: See, I find it really refreshing that you're open to having these conversations about holding space for point of views you might not be familiar with or you might not agree with, and I think uh, you know embracing the the missteps one can make along the way, uh, and being open to you know hearing correction or hearing opinions about your behaviour or the way you think about things, uh, whether you're a man. Or a woman, whether you're old or young, whether you, you know, are black or white, or all of the wonderful shades in between. That's how we move forwards together as a society and a community.
0: Oh, absolutely! And I mean, one of the hardest things to do is to listen to criticism or listen to the unfolding of the things that you don't know about yourself. When you suddenly see yourself from someone else's point of view, it can be quite horrifying.
8: And I wanted to ask you a question. What other ways do you hold space for perhaps not being the most, you know, dominant person in the room? Do you step back when, you know, you're in meetings with women or, you know, is there a conscious thing you do to, uh, you know, try and subvert the patriarchy in your own way?
0: Um, Well, I... And learning, you know, one of the things that occurred recently is that I've been listening back to previous episodes of Fashion by Dad where you've joined me on microphone and I've realised just how much I shut you up and talk <laughs> over the top of you, so I'm refraining from doing that. So that's one small uh, way. Now, That's just a current example, but um, you know i'm involved in teaching and consulting with businesses and so on so i and i deliberately place myself in positions of authority and power because i want to and so that's you know self-serving and satisfying uh, thing to do but i have always uh, striven strove strived I've strived, always I strived think. to be uh, a considerate and empathetic boss and so I've developed a lot of techniques <laughs> to but you're
8: still in charge do <laughs> but, you feel I, entitled to being in charge
0: oh absolutely <laughs> and you know i was listening to someone discussing the difference between aristocracy and aristocracy and how we're all repulsed in a modern society by the idea that someone could be born into the privilege to rule over other people for example but we're not repulsed by the idea that someone cleverer can take control even though white middle-class people with a good education score better on all the cleverer tests and you know, within the same family, someone will be born stupid and someone will be born smart and the smart one will get the advantage and the stupid one will, you know.
8: Well, not necessarily. I think, you know, privilege and entitlement come into play a lot. That you know, it is a myth that the people that are, you know, wealthy and powerful in our society are smarter and everyone has the same opportunities. You know, we're sold that, but it's just not true. It doesn't take into fact, you know, the class, system we live in
0: Mm. But uh, the point that was being made there is that we think we live in a meritocracy, but even if we take out the um, obvious sort of uh, class imbalance, even if it was a true meritocracy, there's still an inbuilt class system in that meritocracy. So there are two things going into that that the... Uh, better your socioeconomic status, the more chances you have to maximize the impact of your cleverness, and that cleverness is just an accident of birth. It happens to be some gene shuffling instead of some family tree shuffling, but it's still privilege. So that being said, I have grown up with, and I mean, this, this goes to the heart of the problem that we face at a society about the um, respect for authority, you know, the undermining of the social institutions and, you know, the disbelief in science and everything that we've seen in, uh, you know, the political sphere over the last decade or so which I would say is the collapse of the social contract that life will continue to be better if we follow the rules. That's what's breaking down. But th- what's happening is that we're hearing all sorts of voices who haven't had a voice before. So in one hand, it's the democratisation of voices. On the other hand, it's a disrespect for those forms of authority that have that held us in place. And, you know, have they held held us in place or have they held us together? What's the difference between holding us in place and holding us together? How do we break down the walls of privilege without uh, moving to anarchy? Um, you know, some people would say anarchy is not such a bad thing, but, you know, there, there needs think, to be forms of organisation at some I point. I think
8: we can break down the walls of privilege without descending into anarchy. I think, I think that's, you know, one of the fears of, particularly within the patriarchy, that, you know, if you disrupt the status quo, things will go terribly wrong for me and then everyone else. But I did want to note that, you know, even you supporting these conversations and having me on this show as a different voice to you is a great way to hold space.
0: Well, we have to start somewhere. And so, yes, we have to use the... And I I also
8: wanted to ask... Now, you know that I'm very poor this week because I did not manage my pay, my teaching pay very well. Uh, And someone has mysteriously paid my uh, radio...
0: Oh well, welcome, welcome, to, uh, a new subscriber to Four Triple Z people. Thank Claire you, Claire Tracy Art is now a subscriber and can ring up and get th- free giveaways like the Vita Awakening book, which Claire is just bursting to make uh, fun of. But you, dear <laughs> listener, can have your very own copy and then make fun of it in your own way. All you need to do is SMS us on 0420 626 733. and I will arrange for. Uh, your copy of Vita Awakening to come to you.
8: It's festival time. Brisbane Festival is on now until September 25. Experience Let's Be Friends forever with adorable pooches on stage. Catch Restless Dream at the Tivoli or Bring the Sing with Masayoki after Sunsuper River Fire at Southbank Piazza. Join the party and be brightly Brisbane. Book now at BrisbaneFestival.com.au. Brisbane Festival is an initiative of the Queensland Government and Brisbane City Council. Proud, Proud sponsors, sponsors of Four ZZ. Triple Z.
0: And on Four Triple Z, you are on Fashion by Dad. And here on Fashion by Dad, you're listening to Jeff Hebs. I'm joined by Claire Tracy Art. Uh, We've been discussing the patriarchy, among other things. And uh, Bones rang in to pick up a copy of Vita Awakening, uh, the booklet from Guy Lane uh, about his uh, Vita or Vita uh, Gaia-based religion.
8: Now, because I didn't wake up at 2 a.m. this morning, and I'm not quite aware of Guy Lane and his Vita Awakening, is it a religion? Is it a cult?
0: Well, he's uh, registered religion. He says it's a spiritual philosophy, uh, but he's registered a religious institution so that he can participate in high-level discussions with organisations like the UN Convention on Religion next and year in China.
8: I know from our previous conversations that, um, from my point of view, it does seem a little suspect that a guy is creating a religion to celebrate, you know, the, the feminine Mother Earth... Without really incorporating, you know, any female voices
0: into the is Ironies religion. abound. Yeah. Mm.
8: Do you feel comfortable to comment on that after I talk about holding space within the patriarchal system we live in?
0: Well, I mean, we can hold a lot of spaces for a lot of different people. Um, this morning, Guy uh, was talking about the nature of spirituality and the. Um, challenge to make room for spirituality in the uh, modern world. And so one of the things I played was a discussion between various people at the World Localization Day uh, about science and spirituality. And so then Guy and I discussed how to make that an adversarial conversation creates its own problems and, you know, we have to be able to resolve those issues. So there's lots of issues that two old white males can discuss together without, uh, (laughs) hopefully, without adding to the oppression. uh, You know, we can explore the issues... uh, with an open mind
8: so did guy you know kind of uh explore the fact that most religions have been started by middle-aged white men and how is he gonna
0: well i I think the
8: operate in that space i
0: I think the best way to continue that conversation claire is that you do wake up at two o'clock in the morning one morning and come in to um chat to guy about Uh, Vita Awakening. That way I don't feel like the meat in the sandwich defending one or the other.
4: I look forward to it.
0: Excellent. You heard it first here on Fashion by Dad. Here is Ignea with their new songs uh, Mermaids. Now, Ignea is a uh, Banned from the Crimea in northeastern Ukraine. Uh, their new album is coming out, Bestia. Bestia, which means both uh, monstrous beast and mischievous person. You bestia, you. And uh, the tracks on it include um, Bokosun, the story of the mountain god that seeks revenge, which contains lyrics such as, You will not take over my country while I'm alive. You're. Um, anus will be speared by my sharpened spike and other such sort of patriarchal warrior type of uh, phrases which seem to be commonplace in folk metal.
8: And just in general in this week's episode, pegging abounds. <laughs>
0: Peg- pegging abounds, perhaps that's <laughs> the name of the episode. Anyway, this is Ignia with their... Um, uh, track mermaids, which uh, features women, but they're mostly diaphanously draped in, um, you know, silky, silvery...
8: So you're referring that they are uh, pleasantly attired for the male gaze?
0: They are pleasantly attired for the male gaze. They seek some sort of revenge on men, but it's mostly done through mystical uh, means and Is the...
8: seductively enticing them off their nice, safe yachts?
0: No, 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 it's not a... Sorry. They... Um, employ a sort of form of witchcraft which uh, their actions uh, they they use the men as puppets
8: sounds good to me
0: and if you watch the ignia film clips um you start to wonder if that distinctly male sounding throat singing is actually coming out of one of the lead singer's mouth she's Uh, petite and uh, sort of but wild, you know, this absolutely wild face and expression.
8: So why do you think deepened throat singing is particularly male sounding to you?
0: Well, because the the deep sounding throat singing that I hear mostly comes out of male bodies.
8: Interesting. I've heard a lot of, uh, you know, I have a a secret love for heavy metal and
0: well, not secret so much longer. Uh, well, you'll just have to ha- catch up with this Ignea. So they're releasing tracks for their forthcoming album, Bestia, as we speak. Mermaids is the second one offered in the last month or so. And Basalkun, the uh, mountain god, is another. Now, we're just about out of time. Claire Tracy Art. So it's been fabulous to have you here on Fashion by Dad.
8: Thank you for having me and hopefully today we can all lean into those uncomfortable spaces where we will have some sort of self-realisation about the unconscious roles we play in society.